Hello everyone, Justin here. This episode was originally recorded on Wednesday, October 11th at 1.30 p.m. Central Time. As of the evening of October 12th, we had two new executive orders on healthcare. Listen for more details about these updates throughout the episode. Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesroot. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for our 10th episode. All right, what's that music that I'm hearing? Julie, Kelly, I know we love a good theme, but why does it sound like you just put me on hold? Well, because we kind of did. It's true. Despite all the action and reaction we've heard about in the news over the last four weeks, as of this recording, not much has actually changed, and we're still waiting to hear what will happen next. I guess you're right. But I do have a few brief updates about MEPRA, tax reform, and one of the court cases that we're following. So let me give you a quick two-minute recap. Starting with MEPRA, we had mentioned the New York State Teamsters Fund, in which the Treasury approved reductions on August 3rd. The participant vote opened on August 16th and ended on September 6th. Of the eligible voters who received a ballot, 28% voted against reductions, 12% approved, and 60% abstained. Therefore, reductions began on October 1st. Last month, we had discussed a few applications that were withdrawn, and we have two new funds that have done so. The Western States Office and Professional Employees Pension Fund from Portland, Oregon, that withdrew on August 11th and quickly refiled on August 24th, and IBT Local 805 in New York, New York, that withdrew on September 21st. Moving on to potential tax reform, the GOP framework was released on September 27th, and it does not mention retirement plans. There had been some conflicting discussion on whether taxation for 401k and similar plans will be changed. And finally, on to same-sex marriage and the Pigeon versus Turner case. On June 30th, the Texas Supreme Court ruled that while same-sex marriage is legal, the, quote, reach and ramifications of the rights of gay couples still had to be determined. This case reversed a lower court's ruling that confirmed the city of Houston's decision to extend health and life insurance benefits to the same-sex spouses of city employees. On August 10th, three city workers and their spouses sued the city of Houston, asking for a court order to stop any possible action that would force the city to stop paying benefits for same-sex spouses. On September 15th, the city of Houston asked the U.S. Supreme Court to hear this case. In the meantime, they continue to pay benefits. Thanks, Justin. As usual, I'm up next to talk about health care. And if you thought that hold music was on loud before... Unfortunately, it's time to turn it up even more. In just the last month, the Senate tried to answer the call on health care reform, but put us right back on hold. A lot has happened, but since not much has actually changed, I think I'm going to follow Justin's lead and tackle all of this in a two-minute update of my own. Well, 
I might need more than two minutes. Okay, here goes. In late September, the Senate made one more last-ditch effort to repeal and replace ACA before the budget reconciliation option expired on September 30th. Just a quick reminder, the Republicans needed to use the budget reconciliation approach because that requires only 51 votes to pass a bill in the Senate instead of 60 votes, and it limits a filibuster. There are currently 52 Republicans in the Senate. This time, the legislation was called the Graham-Cassidy Bill, and it would have shifted much more responsibility to the states, especially for Medicaid. The Congressional Budget Office did not have time to do a full analysis, but said if the bill were enacted, it would have resulted in millions of people losing coverage. The bill did not come to a vote, however, because Senators Rand Paul, John McCain, Susan Collins, and others said they would not vote for it. Kelly, I heard the House has already passed a resolution to set up a budget reconciliation bill for 2018. Is health care reform going to be attached to that bill? Well, Congress appears to have shifted their focus to tax reform now, and since there can only be one budget reconciliation bill each year, it's unlikely that Congress will address repealing and replacing ACA in 2018 through budget reconciliation. So in other words, it may be 2019 before the Republicans would make another attempt to use a budget reconciliation bill to fully repeal and replace ACA. True, but that's not to say that changes to ACA couldn't be achieved in other ways. They could propose to change some of the tax-related aspects of ACA in the tax reform bill. They could work with the Democrats on a bipartisan bill so that they would get the 60 votes needed to pass a bill in the Senate. Yes, that's also true. Unfortunately, that has been a rare occurrence in recent years. Another possibility is that they could include changes to narrow specific provisions of ACA in other legislation not specifically focused on health care. For example, in mid-September, the House passed the Make America Secure and Prosperous Appropriations Act and included in its 1,600-plus pages a provision that would strip away the IRS funding to implement and enforce ACA's individual mandate. The bill was sent to the Senate for their consideration on September 25th. If the bill passes the Senate, it will greatly weaken the individual mandate provision. Congress could address other provisions of ACA in a similar manner. Yes, that's an interesting point. And I think your two minutes are up, Kelly. Oh, no, don't put me on hold yet. I've got more. Can you reset the clock and give me another two or three minutes? Mm, I don't know, Justin. What do you think? Uh, It'd be tough to disconnect her at this point. It sounds like she's got some pretty important news. Okay. Great, thanks. I'll try to be brief. Another active attempt to legislate changes related to ACA has taken the form of bipartisan Senate hearings aimed at stabilizing the ACA exchanges for 2018. The goal of the Senate committee holding the hearings was to act by September 27th, which was the deadline for insurers to sign contracts to sell health plans on the 2018 exchanges. Their momentum was interrupted by efforts to pass the Graham-Cassidy bill, however. We'll have to just stay tuned to see if this committee is able to agree on a bill to support. And I have one more legislative update on health care reform. On September 13th, Senator Bernie Sanders introduced his long-anticipated Medicare for All single-payer health care bill to create a national health insurance program. This legislation would make it unlawful for employers to provide benefits that duplicate the national program's benefits. 
the bill appears to allow employers to provide supplemental benefits that cover private contracts employees may enter into with providers. But these benefits may be subject to corporate and individual income taxes as well as payroll taxes. Kelly, in your opinion, is there a chance this bill will pass? The bill really has no chance of passage in the current Congress, but 16 senators co-sponsored the bill, and some Democrats expect their future presidential candidates will support the concept. So it seems like there's been a lot of activity, but we're still on hold when it comes to health care reform legislation. Yeah, that about sums it up. I do have a few noteworthy updates since our last podcast before we move on to other topics, though. First... On October 6th, the Trump administration issued regulations to permit any employer or insurer to stop covering contraceptive services if they have religious beliefs or moral convictions against covering birth control. Now, as a reminder, under ACA, employers were required to cover contraceptive services without any cost-sharing provisions. Several religious organizations and other employers objected on moral and religious grounds and filed lawsuits. The Obama administration responded with an accommodation for these plans, but it was not well received. But these new regulations went into effect immediately, so that issue is really no longer a concern for those organizations. However, several states and legal organizations have responded already by filing lawsuits claiming the new rules violate equal protection clauses and constitutional guarantees of religious freedom by allowing companies to use religious beliefs as a way to deny women a federally entitled health benefit. So it's important to note that for employers that have religious or moral objections under these regulations, they can stop offering contraception coverage. But for other employers, those without objections, they'll continue offering coverage. Kelly, you left us hanging on the September 27th deadline for insurers. Are there going to be health insurance exchange gaps across the country? Well, there's good news and bad news about that. The good news is that every county in the country has at least one health care insurer on its exchange. The bad news is that many insurers submitted higher premium rates to create a financial cushion in case the cost-sharing subsidies are stopped. Whoa, hold the phone. Here's the first of the updates that I had mentioned. Yes, on October 12th, President Trump signed an executive order saying that the cost-sharing subsidies made to insurers to help defray the costs of lower-income individuals under ACA will stop immediately. This will no doubt result in premium increases for plans offered on the exchanges. The Congressional Budget Office estimated that premiums for ACA's benchmark silver plans will increase by about 20 percent without those subsidies. Thank you, Kelly. And now back to the regular episode. Now, those figures apply to the health insurance exchanges or marketplaces that offer policies to individuals without employer coverage. So, Kelly, what are the predictions for employer plans? Well, for employer plans, the predicted average cost increases for 2018 are much lower in the 45 to 6.5% range. There's going to be a post about this soon in the International Foundation's Word on Benefits blog. Is that correct? Yes, look for a blog post in the next month or so at ifebp.org slash blog. We'll be taking a deeper look at premium increases and reviewing some research about how the average consumer interprets this information. 
Anything else for healthcare news? Yes, I've got two more things. First, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, resigned on September 29th after drawing criticism for using expensive private air travel for government business. A new secretary has not been named yet. And finally, the Trump administration is finalizing an executive order to direct the Departments of Health and Human Services, Labor, and Treasury to ease the way for the formation of association health plans. These types of plans would allow individuals and small employers to band together to buy health insurance as a group to negotiate lower prices. These association health plans would qualify as large employer plans that would not have to cover all of the essential health benefits required by ACA. In addition, the order is expected to permit individuals to buy insurance across state lines. As with his previous executive order on health care rules, it's uncertain what effect the order will have or how soon these provisions could be implemented. All right, I've got to interrupt again. It's time for another update. What a difference a day makes. On the same day that the president signed the executive order on cost-sharing subsidies mentioned earlier, he signed another executive order, the one I just described. In addition to everything we expected, the order seeks to expand the availability and use of health reimbursement arrangements, often called HRAs. We'll be sure to let you know when these new regulations are released. You can also follow along at ifebp.org slash transition tracker. All right, thank you. And now back to the regular episode. Now, Justin, I'm sorry, but I have some more news related to health care, so have patience with me. Over the last month, we've observed some interesting developments in response to both rising prescription drug costs and the opioid crisis. First, let's take a look at the projected cost increases for prescription drugs in 2018. Now, certainly prescription drug costs have been increasing every year at a pace that's higher than general inflation and, recently, medical inflation. But we got a wee bit of good news this past month. Siegel's latest trend report was released in mid-September. They're reporting that outpatient prescription drug costs for individuals under age 65 will increase 10.3% in 2018. Now that's down slightly from 11.6% in 2017. And specialty drugs, which are always a high cost, will see an increase of 17.7% in 2018. Not good, but even that's down a percentage point from 18.7% in 2017. Julie, weren't there other numbers released last spring on prescription drug costs? Yes, Justin. Uh, in May, we saw Milliman release their annual medical index. With this report, they look at health cost expenditures for an average family of four. They found prescription drug costs rose 8% on average in 2017. This was down from 13.6% in 2015 and 9.1% in 2016, but still higher than medical inflation. Gosh, those constantly increasing costs for prescription drugs are a challenge that continues to plague employers. That's right, Kelly. In our own survey work, we've asked our member employers to tell us what they're doing to manage these escalating costs. For example, when we conducted our biennial benefits benchmarking survey in 2016, the top cost management strategies being implemented were setting three or more cost-sharing tiers, mail-order drug services, drug formularies, the use of pharmacy benefit managers, using step therapy or therapeutic substitution, 
in promoting or mandating the use of generic drugs. There's been a lot of discussion here in the United States about the high price of drugs and calls to change their pricing. On October 1st, a new law went into effect in Maryland that limits spikes in prescription drug prices. The state will be able to penalize pharmaceutical manufacturers for excessive price hikes and will also be able to reverse price increases. The law applies only to older, generic, and off-patent drugs that see a price increase of 50% or more in a single year. This is the first state law to allow penalizing drug makers for price gouging. That's interesting, Julie. And I just read that on October 9th, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a drug price transparency bill. This new law requires drug companies to give 60 days notice to state agencies and health insurers if they plan to raise the price of a drug by 16% or more over two years if the drug has a wholesale cost of $40 or more. This notification mandate goes into effect January of 2018. Kelly, it seems like the discussion and the action since then is due to some high-profile cases like the dramatic cost increases for EpiPen last year and Turing Pharmaceuticals' overnight increase of the cost of one Daraprim pill from $13.50 to $750. I think you're right, Justin. Other states are also looking at prescription drug costs. Some have already passed cost transparency laws. Others are looking to limit what states will pay for drugs, regulate PBM roles, and cap consumers' out-of-pocket costs. As we see with other types of benefits, often when state laws are passed, it's because there's inconsistency or inaction at the federal level. I remember prescription drug costs were a platform issue for both candidates during the 2016 presidential election. Are there bills pending in Congress right now? Yes, there are. At last count, there were 21 bills pending in either the House or the Senate. None of them has really gained traction, though. So what you're really saying is that we're on hold again. Yes, I guess you could say that. Now, for the regulation of prescription drugs at the federal level, we have the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. While the FDA doesn't control drug pricing, they do regulate the safety and effectiveness of prescription drugs. On October 2nd, the FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, MD, shared more information about the agency's Drug Competition Action Plan, which was announced earlier in 2017. He announced new policies to speed up the regulatory approvals of certain kinds of generic alternatives to pricey complex drugs. The goal, he said, is to enable more generic competition to reduce prices, enable more access, and improve public health. Another major challenge related to prescription drugs is the opioid epidemic. While this hasn't yet officially been declared a national emergency by the president, we hear multiple stories daily about the toll that opioid addiction takes on families and communities. And it also impacts the workplace. Justin, why don't you share with our listeners a little data from the survey we released last December about substance abuse benefits. I remember we had a question focusing on the actions employers are taking to combat opioid abuse. We did, Kelly. Uh, The most common method that's been implemented to combat opioid abuse is requiring prior authorization for outpatient opioid prescriptions in excess of a specified number of days. Next most common is allowing for alternative pain management treatments like osteopathic manipulative treatment. 
It's important to note, however, that one-third of the respondents to our survey were not implementing any methods to combat abuse. Yes, it's still an evolving area that most employers are trying to get a handle on. When I looked into this topic for this survey, I discovered that some companies are requiring prior authorization if the prescription is for more than 15 days. Interestingly, just a couple of weeks ago, the Drug Industry Trade Group, Pharmaceutical Research Manufacturers of America, announced their support for limiting a patient's opioid supply to seven days for first-time acute pain treatment. And within the last month or two, both CVS Health and Express Scripts announced their limiting first-time opioid prescriptions to seven days. This is something we're seeing discussed at the state level, too. At least 17 states have laws on the books. Some laws limit first-time prescriptions to five or seven days. Other laws limit daily dosages. It's widely recognized that the longer a person uses an opioid for acute pain, the more likely they'll become addicted. Clearly, the opioid epidemic is a growing issue that no one can ignore, including employers. The International Foundation is teaming up with MRA, the Management Association, for an event on November 9th. This half-day event will help employers understand the opioid addiction crisis and the impact on their workplaces. There will be an emphasis on keeping employees healthy and safe and keeping companies productive. Join us for this important event, either virtually or for our local listeners in person. Register online at ifebp.org opioid. That sounds like a really interesting and important event, Julie. Thanks for sharing. Now, before we hang up on this episode, let's transfer our listeners to another true story. Justin recently recorded a call for quality purposes with Wendell Perkins. Yes, I really enjoyed the conversation that I had with Wendell. Let's take a listen. So true story. True story. True story. So true story here for you. Today I'm chatting with Wendell Perkins, Senior Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at Manulife Asset Management in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Wendell. Thank you. Uh, Can you start off by telling our listeners what you do? Yes. So uh, I run a team that runs international value equities for Manulife Asset Management. So we invest in equities outside of the uh, U.S. market, mostly in uh, developed countries. And how long have you been in that industry? Oh, uh, wow. Almost 35 years. Okay. So I bet over those 35 years that you probably have some pretty interesting stories. Do you care to share one? Sure. So true story. One of the challenges in our industry is that of style purity, you know, that we're hired to do specific things uh, within the market. In my case, we do international value equity investing, and we have a very strict investment process that we follow. The client understands uh, or is supposed to understand what it is they've hired us to do. You know, but sometimes you know, with all the pressures of performance, uh, sometimes they forget. So, you know, we have a very large institutional client that hired us for uh, our international value mandate. And a couple of years ago, particularly, uh, value was uh, terribly out of favor. Growth was outperforming significantly, you know, we were trailing benchmarks because of our value ideology. We were following process exactly as we were hired, and we could articulate that to our client. Uh, but they were under pressure, and the board had put them under pressure. So the challenge always with clients is, one, that they articulate to you what it is that their concerns are, but then secondly, that, that you can bring them back to what it is that they hired you to do. And in this case, we had a very nice congenital meeting with the client and reminded them why they hired us, 
what our process is, where we add value, the challenges that we saw in the market that were impacting our performance within our space. In this case, I mean, you know, fortunately, we did have a return to better performance in the in the international value space. Our numbers turned up significantly, and we were there for them. We outperformed for them meaningfully and the kind of market that we should have outperformed for them in. They saw what we did for them, and it, it actually, um, in the end, I think enhanced our relationship because uh, they began to understand kind of where we fit and the value add that we have as a partner, as a manager for them. And that all, um, in the end, played out quite well for them and for us. So what is the moral of your story, Wendell? You know, the moral of the story is, is that for all participants, there is always fairly intense pressure uh, on benchmarking and um, providing alpha, protecting to the downside, providing the upside, that sometimes we lose you know, we lose sight of what it is that we're trying to achieve, that these are long live assets and that we're trying to achieve long-term returns that have an attractive risk-adjusted profile. And what, what we've constructed is meant to do that. And if you have an asset class out of style, the best thing that you can do for that manager is let them be out of style, mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, at some point in the future, um, that performance will come back. Fantastic. Wendell Perkins, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Even though we're still waiting to hear more on most of the things we talked about today, your interview with Wendell is a great reminder that even when there's a break in the action, it's still so important for employers to keep the lines of communication open. Yes, and that's true for plan participants, members, and vendors. I agree. Well, let's let our listeners off the hook and get back to it. We won't make you stay on the line to take a survey on our performance. But if you like what you hear, please rate us or give us a review on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back in November. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.